This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It can be found on page 981 of the Pew Bibles, or follow along on the screen. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that, has, that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Bill. Let's begin in prayer, asking the spirit to work as the word has been read and is preached. Holy Spirit, who's with us even now, may your presence and wisdom open our eyes and ears to what you have for us today. May it continually work in our hearts to transform us into the people you desire us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I invite you into a little imaginary exercise with me. Let's imagine that right now, through those two doors in the back, walks Bill Gates. Maybe not, well, Steve. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, maybe not right now, because that would be really awkward, but maybe during the first song, and you kind of see him, and you think, I think that's Bill Gates, and then you do something you've never done and will never do again, which is a Google image search in church, and you search for Bill Gates, and the images come up, and you look at them, and you look at Bill Gates, or who you think is Bill Gates, and you look at them, and you think, yeah, that's Bill Gates, and then when the prayer is over, you nudge the person next to you and say, hey, I think that's Bill Gates. And they look. And then you start to think, this is really awesome. Bill Gates is at our church. 
and you wonder if he's a believer, or you, you start to think about how much influence he has and how awesome it would be to say that you go to church with Bill Gates. Maybe you wonder if he could serve on council, or you think about some financial projects our church is involved with and how he could just bankroll the whole thing. I mean, I Googled him, and I read that he has $92.3 billion. And so that church in India that we partner with, the Hindustani Covenant Church, I spoke with Yogi, and, and to build the building they need, it costs $200,000 and then $40,000 for annual expenses, and we could just ask Bill Gates. Uh, some of you I know partner either through work or helping raise funds with By the Hand Club in Chicago. I'm just curious to see who of you have helped with, with By the Hand Club in, in any way at all, okay? Yeah, so quite a few. So um, we could just ask Bill Gates and he could help make the money that's needed for this upcoming year's annual budget. And then we heard about how we've purchased a second parsonage and we could ask Bill Gates and he could just pay the entire mortgage off. And this would be fantastic. Or maybe you think about this more personally, like, huh, I was really looking for an investor for my next project and he would be perfect. Or maybe you're looking for some wisdom in business and he would be a great person to ask. I, I mean, this is so exciting. I cannot wait until Bill Gates becomes a member of our congregation. I mean, he would have to move to Hinsdale from Seattle first, but still, I mean, there's a chance. One in 92.3 billion. And, and so if, if you got a, a little interested and um, excited hearing about Bill Gates coming to church, I want you to know that that is what our passage is about today. It's about how excited we get when we imagine someone like Bill Gates joining us and how we favor them and believe that they are so important to the kingdom of God, far more important to God's kingdom than the poor. James chapter 2, verse 1 begins our passage for today. And, and the first line up there is what we see in our pew Bibles. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? This is actually a rather challenging sentence to translate from the Greek. You might notice quite a bit of diversity here. The English Standard Version says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. My favorite translation is from the biblical scholar James B. Adamson. Do not try to combine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our glory, with worship of men's social status. And then finally, the RSV, which is a pretty good word-for-word -word translation, says, my brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So these are all different, but what we see clearly is that for those who hold faith in Christ or who hold to the faith of Christ, they must not show partiality or favoritism to the wealthy. That is a noun, and it's a noun, the one for partiality or favoritism, that only shows up four times in the New Testament. The Greek word here is prosopolopsia, and it means the act of giving judgment that has respect to the outward circumstances of people and not to their intrinsic merits, 
so that one prefers, as the more worthy, one who is rich or high-born or powerful, to another who is destitute of such gifts. And that, that's a different way of saying poor. Destitute of such gifts. And so why are we not to have partiality? And I think this is because, as you hopefully realize when we imagined Bill Gates being with us, that we can get really excited about the social status of others when they seem to have a lot to offer. This may have looked different in the first century on the outside, but in many ways it's exactly the same. Jesus talks about the rich man entering, and he has a lot of external signs of wealth, a gold rings and fancy clothes, and then there's a poor guy in the filthy clothes because the poor in the ancient world had one outfit, so they can't really wash it very easily, and so the poor have the filthy clothes. And even today, we are able to recognize external markers of wealth, a designer handbag or jewelry, a car, a certain address. We know how to recognize wealth just like they did in the first century. Many of us might be able to recognize the difference between designer and knockoff brands. Maybe you know that the iPhone 10 is 7.7 millimeters thick. And many of you could look at my phone if I had it up here and recognize that at four years old, it is very old. And so we're quick to assess, to notice things. And I think late elementary school and junior high, this is very evident. If you've ever tried to get your kids an off-brand uh, garment or shoes or phone. <laughs> so we're quick to assess these things and to notice people's wealth and status. And then when we notice the Bill Gates, we think, huh, this might be beneficial, and so we want to offer Bill some coffee and help him find his way around. Now, about the others, I, I would affirm us that I believe we are good and holy enough that no one here is going to ask the poor to stand in the corner or sit at our feet. I, I really believe that, that we are good enough for that. But we might show our distance in another way. Perhaps we might think internally, huh, if I befriend her, what will she ask of me? Will he ask me for money? Will he ask for help? This is the judgment that James is talking about. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We become these judges because we deeply understand the economy of success. This is the American dream. That to succeed in life, you need money and power and status, which is why we get really excited when we imagine a nice guy like Bill Gates coming to church. And this is favoritism. The challenge is, is that these evil thoughts that James talks about, that doesn't really sound evil to us. It sounds practical and pragmatic. Of course we are excited when Bill Gates comes to church. Of course. But here is where it is important to understand the social context of James, especially to the first recipients of his, letters, which would, his letter, which would have been in Judea, the immediate environment. Pastor Lars has already given a sort of historical context of James, the brother of Jesus, the servant of God who wrote the book. And he also talked about the literary context, how James is, uh, is doing a callback to wisdom literature to the Beatitudes and teachings of Christ. And so I'm going to say a few words about the social context of James. So at the time James was written, huge division between the rich and the poor, and many poor peasants worked as tenants on large feudal farms, 
Others would serve as day laborers in the marketplace. Maybe you remember Jesus' parable about the day laborers from the book of Matthew. And they would wait around in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire them, which didn't always happen. And it makes sense that the poor resented the wealthy landlords because there was no path to wealth or money or prestige for them at all. So there's nothing they can do about their situation. Some could rebel and decide not to pay the goods. But then what would happen is, at best, they would be taken to court. And at worst, the wealthy landlords would hire assassins to kill them. So these social and economic tensions led to violence in Palestine. And there were some Jewish nationalists who would follow all the teachings of scripture. Except one, they wouldn't bat an eye at killing a Jewish aristocrat for the sake of justice, an aristocrat who was taking advantage of the poor. That's the social context of this passage. So what's fascinating about what James does is James actually demonstrates no favorites by taking almost everyone who would have been listening to the letter to task. So he doesn't address the rich directly in this portion of the letter, but later in James, you'll hear the rich directly addressed directly in second person. So first, the rich are taken to task for their exploitation of others. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? It's believed that this noble name is the name of Christian. As believers in Jesus were first starting to be called Christians after Christ. So first, the rich are taken to task for dragging others into court. Second, those in the meeting who are showing favoritism are being taken to task. James says in verses 9 through 10, If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So don't have favorites. Don't give the rich the special seat and make the poor sit on the floor. And finally, this is pretty subtle in the text, but I also believe that James is taking to task those who are taking justice into their own hands. Those Jewish nationalists who are wanting to make justice happen and who are lashing out murderously even for the sake of justice. In James 2.11, he writes, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So all three of these groups are taken to task. But, you know, I don't think the poor are taken to task here. In fact, James blesses the poor, referencing the Beatitudes. James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He's referencing Jesus speaking the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, when Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke a lot about the poor, especially in Luke's gospel. Jesus' first sermon, he goes to the synagogue, he opens the scroll to the book of Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So both Jesus' teaching for his first message in the synagogue and also his Sermon on the Mount are being referenced here by James. 
Now, I want to make it really clear that I do think James is using exaggerated language. He's not saying 100% of the rich are bad and take advantage and exploit, and 100% of the poor have an immense amount of faith. He, he's using hyper, hyperbolic language to make a rhetorical point. Because there are examples in scripture of wealthy people who care for others and who work for God's kingdom. Maybe you think about Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his own tomb for Jesus to be buried in, and donated linen, which is a very expensive cloth, to be wrapped around Jesus' body. Maybe you think of Lydia in Philippi, who was a dealer in purple cloth. She was very wealthy, too, and some attribute her as being the first pastor of the church in Philippi. On the other hand, not all poor have faith. You might know of examples yourself. Some poor have never heard the gospel of good news of Jesus Christ that Jesus himself proclaimed for the poor. But there is truth in this exaggeration. And this is the truth. The rich tend to have less faith because they don't need it. They don't have to worry that there will be enough food or money to pay the gas bill or new shoes for their kids when their feet grow. They don't have to worry. But the poor do. And often in the chaos and need of their lives, they are able to find solace in hope, hope in God's future coming kingdom, and hope in God's present love. When I think of the kind of hope and faith of the poor, I think of the tradition of Negro spirituals from the American South during the time of slavery. That is some of our music that is most clearly and beautifully articulating the deep need of God that comes from a culture of deep poverty. So James ends the section by saying, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over justice. And this short sentence, we could do a whole sermon on this sentence here, but it gets to some of the heart of the tension of what it means to be a Christian. As followers of Jesus, we're asked to affirm and believe that Jesus is God's son and that we are only saved through his work. But we're also asked to follow Jesus, to get up, to take our cross and follow him, to bend not just our beliefs, but our whole being, our body and soul and spirit toward him. And this includes our actions. And this is why later in chapter two, James will say, faith without works is dead. If you say you believe in Jesus, but you show favoritism to the rich, or you are the rich who exploit others, or you are a nationalist who kills for the sake of an ideology, even if it's just, that is not showing the fruit of real faith. This is what James is talking about. And the law that gives freedom is the marriage between the law of God, as communicated throughout the entire Bible, and the mercy of God that has always been required to stand in God's presence. This is what James is talking about. So what do we do? I mean, Bill Gates is probably never going to enter those doors. And I know that none of you will ever ask a poor person to sit by your feet. Thank God that the tradition of renting out pews, which has gone by the wayside a long time ago, to people with money is no more. But we still have this teaching of James to wrestle with. I was thinking of this great leveling between the rich and the poor. In this chapter this week, as I served at, at Covenant Point Camp as a camp pastor, uh, I was the camp pastor for 58 fourth through sixth graders during Wilderness Week. 
um, it, was, it was a hard week. Most of the counselors said it was a harder week than usual, uh, but it was fantastic to see some of the kids interact with nature for the first time. I taught a little girl from the city what moss is, um, and which is sweet and sad too. Um, I gave six sermons, cared for the staff and counselors and was preparing for today. But as I was there, I kept thinking about how camp, specifically Covenant Point this week, is a great leveler. No kid ever gets special treatment because of their social status back home or how great their grades are or if their mom has been made partner. No kid ever gets to be the star at camp games because, you know, we don't play those kind of games at camp. Um, we play weird games. <laughs> I remember being a camper at a different camp when I was younger, and when we'd play baseball, I thought, oh, no. Um, but, because that's a game that kids who practice it and who are on baseball teams can excel at, and other kids don't. But we don't play baseball at camp. We play, like, Narnia and Despicable Me. And this game, I don't know what it was called, but it was sort of like try to get the cat out of a tree, and the cat was a person, and it involved water bottles and riddles and jokes. Um, I could not even tell you how to play it. <laughs> but every kid just brings themselves, and the staff tries to get each child to flourish as best as he or she can, wherever they are, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Because this is really how the kingdom of God is. We aren't to show favoritism because wealth and status and prestige is not what God cares about. God cares about our hearts. God cares about our willingness to obey, our openness to the Spirit. And everyone is invited to participate in God's kingdom because each bring different gifts. Way back when, when Justin, my husband, and I were engaged, we went to premarital counseling with Pastor Don. If you don't know him, he's from a different church. And one of the concerns I had going into our marriage was that though we, ha we had many things in common, which were fantastic. We, we were both the eldest of four kids. We were both raised in the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. We both had a dog named Lady. That really gets you far. Um, <laughs> but what was, what was a challenge that I, was, uh, I had some trepidation about was, was that we came from really entirely different economic situations. Uh, Justin had lived in a neighborhood that was quite similar to parts of Hensdale. Um, it had been dated for a long time. Uh, Justin's family was able to financially plan for all of their kids to go to college so they didn't have to worry about that, no matter what grades they got. He'd had a car since he was 16. Not a new car, but, you know, a good drivable car. Uh, I was raised in the home of a pastor, and um, sometimes my dad would go around traveling, doing ministry at churches, and they would raise support. And um, my parents would give thanks before every meal, and we can give thanks and, and say it, but they were really meaning it because sometimes they were concerned about having enough food for us. Sometimes people would give us food that was in dented cans, and um, my mom told me this much later, that she would look at that can of ravioli and know how not healthy it was for the kids, and she'd pray, like, God, help my kids grow strong despite this food that I have to feed them. And there was a farmer in the congregation who would give us food sometimes, and we were never hungry, but um, there were some winters where the warmest part of the house was the basement. And I went to college with government grants because we lived below the poverty line. And I would often choose jobs based on how much they paid rather than whether or not I really wanted to do them. I never had my own car. 
And I'm not telling this story for compassion or pity. God has done amazing things in my life, and I have, I have fantastic, wonderful parents that I'm so thankful for. But I'm, I'm telling you this to show this huge diversity that Justin and I had that I was deeply concerned about. So we shared this with Pastor Don, and he said, do not worry about that. You both have the best of both worlds. When things are tight, listen to Joy. She has this experience. When things are not tight, listen to Justin. He has this experience. Your diversity is the wealth of your marriage. And I have to say, after 17 and a half years of marriage, this has been true in our, in our story. Our differences have been a gift. It's been a wonderful grace from God. And Pastor Don was right, and I'm so thankful for him, and I'm also thankful for, for Justin and the story we share together. And so in this conversation about favoritism, really appreciate what Pastor Don said. Sure, Bill Gates and people like him have tons to offer the kingdom of God, and so do many of us, right? But so does everyone else, no matter their status or wealth or prestige. And it's the kingdom of God that's a great leveler. It's kind of like a weaving. In a weaving, you have the threads that go up and down and the threads that go horizontally, right? When we show favoritism, we're just honoring the threads that go up and down, but that's not fabric. We have to have both. And I'd say in the kingdom of God, it's not just back and forth and up and down. It's also diagonally and the other way, diagonally. So it's really thick and it's really strong. And that's how God has equipped us as a church. In the first century, people showed favoritism because they thought the only thing that mattered was one's social status. But they were wrong. That's not it. God doesn't care about that stuff, and neither should we. Because we need all the kids in the weird game at camp. We need everyone participating with what they have to offer. That's how we get the durable fabric. That's how God works through us to create the people for himself, which is the mission of God on the earth. So this week, I invite you to spend some time in, in James 2 and ask God both how to live in your own life from it and also how to pray from it. There's a practice that I'd like to introduce if you're not familiar with it, where you read scripture and then write or speak a prayer based on that. I'm sure some of you have done this before. So I invited the Scott family to help us out. They're going to be reading a prayer that's based on Acts chapter 2, the first part, and on favoritism. So I invite you all to come up. So as we as they pray, I invite us to listen carefully and pray with them in our hearts. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, the gift you freely give us as we hear the truth of your word and as your spirit works in our lives. Help us to show by what we do and by what we do not do that our faith in you is true. Help us to see others as people created in your image so that we do not show favoritism. Help us to avoid evil thoughts that might lead us to judge others by appearances. Father, we thank you for all who live lives rich in faith, even though they are poor, or in spite of being wealthy. Rich and poor have different and varied needs. Would you please meet our needs and give us assurance each day of our place in your kingdom? Fill them with love and peace as your love overflows in their lives and enables them to love you and others. Protect the poor from dishonor, oppression, and the dishonesty of others. 
Lead those who are rich in wealth, but not faith towards you, to repent of their sins and to treat others as valuable human beings, not objects to be exploited in order to increase wealth. Give us wisdom to see how we can truly love our neighbors, rich or poor, and keep us from the sin of partiality. Reveal to us any intentional or unintentional sins that we may commit so we can repent and do right in the future with the guidance and power your spirit gives us. Father, we have violated your holy law of love in many ways. Forgive us and show us the loving things to say and to do in every situation. Fill us with your spirit that we might fulfill your law of love in the liberty you gave us when you freed us from the law of sin and death. Grant us mercy, O Lord, and forgiveness, and help us to show mercy and forgiveness toward others so they can see you and your character in your life lived through us. In Jesus' name, for his sake, we pray, amen. Amen. 